Good morning, Redemption Hill Church. Put this down or Aaron will turn me down. It's good to be in the house of the Lord, but I have to say that even this morning, I find it very difficult to be here and to stand up here and to speak. Um, I've done, if you will, rounds with the Lord, and he's convicted me on some things. And even last night as I was trying to sleep, I I found it nearly impossible. Um, There's a great fear that happens as far as with me. I I fear men too often, people's opinions of myself. And even um, coming to this text this day that I, I do believe that the Lord has led me to, Um, There was this great fear upon even my heart that many listening might not like what they hear. Many might hate the messenger because of the message. Yeah, what I'm going to say it is found in God's Word, and it is one of the deepest convictions of my heart. As an elder and, and as one whose occupation is to teach God's Word, I want to talk about what concerns me most. Well, here it isn't church facilities. It isn't church programs. It isn't church membership. It isn't church growth. It really isn't even us as believers being the Christians we're called to be. I know that one day that that'll happen, even if it takes death to get us to that place. All these things, don't get me wrong, are important, and I do think about them often, but what concerns me most is this. Those who hear the gospel but don't heed the gospel. Those who know the gospel but don't know the Lord. Those who have the facts of the gospel in their head but do not have faith in Christ in their hearts. It's the unsaved who sit Sunday after Sunday in church services, who hear the sermons, take communion, sing the songs, but have never been born again by the Spirit of God. As a Bible teacher, uh, I was thinking about this the other day. In my six years of teaching Bible, I probably come across and taught 350 students for about two years. Best case scenario, probably about one-third of them are saved. Yet if I was to ask them, maybe in my whole six years there, maybe about three would have actually said, you know what, no, I'm not saved. I just have to wonder if that's true about adults too. I've chosen a passage of Scripture that speaks about this grave danger and my great concern. So I invite you to open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, and we'll start in verse 11. The title of this message this morning is, The Deadliest Sin of All, Being the Almost Christian. Hebrews chapter 5, starting in verse 11. The word of the Lord reads, About this we have much to say. And it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. 
For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good and evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have then fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that is drunk the rain, that often falls on it, and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if the land bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Father, we come before you, and I know my preaching will not do. I know that, um, Father, I'm just a, a fool in comparison to many out in the audience. My intellect won't do. Father, only your efficacious grace, only your spirit can take these truths that examines the deep things of God and apply them to our hearts and lives. Lord, I don't know who for this sermon is, for whom this sermon is for. You know, O oh Lord. You know. Lord, today we're in need of grace. Lord, today we need to hear from you and you alone. May I not get in the way of that. May today we cherish and adore the person and work of your son, Jesus, all the more and see the infinite value of his life and his death and his resurrection for sinners. Let us by faith lay a hold of that even yet today, O Father, for your great namesake and glory. And it is then in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen. The writer here is writing to a church. This church is composed of Jewish people, hence the name of the book, Hebrews. Now, the book in its main context, what it is about is it has the purpose of exploring the greatness of Jesus Christ. The greatness of who he is and his offices, greater than the angels, greater than Moses, greater than Aaron. He has a greater priesthood. He is the greatest of all sacrifices. It's the supremacy of Jesus Christ. However, as the author expounds on the superiority of Jesus, he stops five times. There's five parenthetical statements or five warning sections in this book. 
He takes the time because the author knows that there is tares among the wheat. There are those Jewish people who have been attending church and have heard the same sermons and were taught by the apostles but did not possess Jesus Christ. These warning sections are for unbelievers. Today we're going to look at the third of this, of the five warning sections. We've already read it in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 through 6, 8. And we're going to look about five important truths about unbelief that this section warns us about. God wants us to search our hearts and minds and souls to see if this is true about us. And most importantly, if it is that we would heed the warning of what follows. The first truth, the first point that the author makes is this. Rejecting Christ dulls the mind. Rejecting Christ dulls the mind. We see this in verses 11 through 12a. That the rejection of Jesus Christ will dull our minds over time. He starts off and he says, about this we have much to say. This is actually better translated as, about Him we have much to say. The Him in this section is Melchizedek. You can look over at verse 10. He is the antecedent. And so the writer wants to go on. He wants to write and expound upon and explain the priestly order of Melchizedek. Now, not a lot of Melchizedek is written about in the Old Testament. He's only mentioned in a few places, like Genesis chapter 14 and also in Psalm 110. And the writer wants to go on and explain the priestly order of Melchizedek is superior to the priestly line of Aaron, the high priest, Moses' brother. He wants to go on and explain that ultimately Jesus Christ His high priesthood is after the order of Melchizedek. And so we quote Psalm 110. Jesus' office as priest is vastly superior, vastly greater than any high priest who has ever come before him. Any high priest throughout all of history. And we have to say, even as a Christian, this is a difficult thing. It's a difficult thing to follow what he's saying about Melchizedek. It takes great thought, great prayer, great concentration to get to the bottom of what the writer is saying. Yet there's something different about the believer. We're indwelled with the Spirit of God who leads us in truth. The writer wants to go on, but he stops. And we come to verse 11. There's a problem. He says, I have much to say, and it is hard to explain. It's hard to explain. He's a good teacher, this writer. He knows his audience. He knows that there are some truths, the readers who read this, will it'll fly right over their heads. They won't get it. So he stops before going on about Melchizedek. Now the problem here is not about the teacher's abilities. It is not about the writer's abilities to communicate these deep truths about how Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek. He'll later go on in chapter 7 and on and on and on and talk about it. And it just blow that concept up. 
It'll be amazing. The problem isn't the writer. He's indwelled by the Holy Spirit. He's inspired by the Spirit to write these things. He knows them better than any of us do. Secondly, the problem isn't the intellect, if you will, of the audience. They're Hebrews. They grew up going to the synagogues. They've been attending this church for a long time. They grew up knowing the Scriptures. They knew the things of God. Now, it's not the background knowledge of the uh, readers. No, it's not about the writer. He addresses the problem. The problem was that there were some readers who, according to this, who have become dull of hearing. Dull. Meaning hard-hearted. They'd become foolish. Hardened in their heart. Another way to put it, which isn't so nice, is stupid. The people had sat under great biblical teaching, and yet they hadn't repented of their sins. They haven't yet believed upon Jesus. They were still yet unsaved. Instead of the truth, Sunday after Sunday, building them up, edifying their faith, they became duller and duller and duller. Hearing God's truth but not responding by faith will have an effect. It'll make us duller and more unresponsive to the truth. Turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 13. I see it in this section quite a bit. This is a truth that Jesus expounds upon to listen and not respond only makes the person duller. Matthew chapter 13. Beginning in verse 14. And Jesus had already gone on and been explaining to the crowd these parables and taught the people the Word of God. Getting with His disciples, Jesus explains why they didn't respond in faith. Matthew 13, beginning in verse 14, Jesus says, Indeed, in their case, in the listener's case, this prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled in their eyes that says, You will indeed hear, but not understand. You will indeed see, but not perceive. This people's heart has grown dull. With their eyes they can barely hear, and their, with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. In John chapter 12... Verses 36 to 39, Jesus gives another instance of this. Please listen to what it says. Pay careful attention to what Jesus does here after teaching the multitudes. John 12, 36. He says to them, While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. Yet, when Jesus had said these things, He departed. He departed and He hid Himself from them. Though He had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in Him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what He has heard from us? And whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. 
Here Jesus is explaining that he is the light. He is the one that gives knowledge. He is the one that can make one holy. He had just gone through and expounded upon how he had to die for sinners. That the Son of Man had to be lifted up. And he invites them to come to them, but they've heard the message and they did not respond in faith. And so Jesus goes and he hides himself from them. And what he did physically, it shows what he had also done spiritually. Therefore, they could not believe. You see, the problem is many believe that the gospel is just a suggestion and not a command. Jesus himself said, Behold, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. A command. An imperative. Something we are commanded by God to do and to not to receive and believe the gospel ultimately is to turn one's back on it, to reject it, to deny it. There is no middle ground here. It is either faith or unbelief. One is either on the narrow road that leads to life or the wide road that leads to destruction. Now, something had attracted these Hebrews to come to church, persistently come to church, even though they were not saved. Maybe there was an attractional aspect to it where the gospel was new. Maybe it was the relationships with the people around them. Maybe they got caught up because they did see some of the signs and miracles performed by the apostles. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 show us that. Whatever the case, they sat there Sunday after Sunday. And now what the Spirit had originally done, whatever attracted them in the beginning was now fading very fast. The lights were growing dim. It's a bad example, but maybe it would give us some idea of what's going on. You speak to people who have a a long life of drug addiction. Talk to them about, and the first time they got high, they got loaded. They said, man, I felt so good. It was so great. I was so caught up in it. And then every time they would take thereafter, they're trying always to get back to that initial high. And they can't get there. They never could get to that place that they once were. They had become dull. This is what's happening here in a spiritual sense. Don't we kind of see this in churches? One time, somebody coming under the conviction of the word. There's an attraction there. They see the truth about what's being taught but slowly they grow dull. And so they try to somehow maneuver and and get to that point of initial excitement. The Word of God no longer does it for them. And therefore they jump from church to church to try to basically get into the church that has the music that they like the best so that they can try to have an emotional experience and try to spiritually get to there where they once were. Verse 12, Hebrews 5. For this time you ought to be teachers. This implies that these Unbelieving Hebrews were instructed for years, a long time, in these New Testament, New Covenant truths. They ought to have mastered the things that were taught to them, so much so that they could effectively teach others. And he goes on to say, you need someone to teach you again, again, 
the basic principles of the oracles of God. Since they did not respond with belief in Christ, the writer says that these readers needed to even be taught again the basic principles. The basic principles here could be better translated as the rudiments, the absolute basics. Since he's speaking about the truth here, he's getting back to basically saying in our language, most of the commentators say this, you need to get back to the ABCs. You need to learn the alphabet. And it's even harder for these guys to hear it. The oracles of God, what's expressed there is the Old Testament. To the Jew that had grown up learning that Saturday after Saturday, this would come to quite a shock. You need the rudiments, the ABCs of the Old Testament. They were not ready to read a book. They needed the ABCs of the Old Testament. Laws and sacrifices and ceremonies, the holy days, all of that. These Old Testament things were merely served one purpose. They were a picture to foreshadow Jesus Christ, which is the fulfillment. They could never understand Christ unless they understood these pictures that pointed to Christ. They could not get past the ABCs until they put the letters together that spell J-E-S-U-S. Could this be true of you? Have you become dull of hearing? By this time, should you be teachers and yet you have a hard time even expressing the gospel, the basic truths? Is reading God's word a chore instead of a pleasure? And it bores you. Oh, that you would heed God's warning this morning. You would not harden your hearts if you hear his voice. Oh, that God would wound your conscience, providing you with no comfort until you lay a hold of Christ by faith. Do not dull your minds and hearts. Listen to what the word of the Lord says. Brings us to the second point, the second truth. And it is this. Rejecting Christ disregards the gospel. Rejecting Christ disregards the gospel. We see this in the second half of uh, verse 12 and all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 14. He says... You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. The solid food is for the mature, for those who have the powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. God here makes two contrasts of those who have heard the gospel. They are either a child, or literally in the Greek, baby or infant, and those who are mature. In some translations, perfect, grown up. To put it quite simply, the child, and what distinguishes the child from the mature is this. Discernment. Notice that the mature have the 
powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good and evil. That is not true of the child. The child in this text are unbelievers. They have no discernment in spiritual matters. The Word of God says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, that the natural person, the child, those who are unsaved, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not unable to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Don't we see this lack of discernment in children? You as parents know this. You take an infant and you put them in a room that has objects and everything will get put in that child's mouth. Whether it be good for them or bad for them. You could put rat poison on one plate and that child will put it in its mouth. You could put applesauce or baby food on another plate. It'll put it in its mouth. The child doesn't know. Everything goes in the mouth. There's no discernment there. They don't know what is good for them. They don't know what is harmful to them. Therefore, they only need milk. These children here need the milk, which is the most basic elementary truths of the gospel. They're still choking on the milk. They can't move on to the solid food. They can't comprehend and have not bought into the gospel. And the gospel is pretty simple. It's Jesus is fully God and fully man. He came to earth as the holy creator who lived a perfect life. Died in the place of sinners. Because of sinners we deserve God's Holy judgment. He took the wrath that was due to sinners upon himself upon the cross. The wrath of God Almighty. But he paid that penalty. He paid that debt. The grave could not keep him. Death could not hold Jesus. And he rose from the grave. And as now he has ascended to glory at the right hand of God the Father. He has taken the crown. He is ruler over all. And now as king of heaven and earth, he commands all people everywhere to repent and believe upon him. For there is salvation in no other name. They can't comprehend the truths about Christ's office as high priest until they're saved. Now, the mature here are true believers. They can handle solid food. The solid food in this context is pretty clear. It's how Jesus is after the high priestly order of Melchizedek and what that means. They can struggle with it and achieve it and know it. Notice what it says here. That they have achieved powers of discernment trained by constant practice. Trained by constant practice. They're doers of the word. They're obeyers of the word. In constant practice, taking God's word in, obeying it out of a love for Jesus Christ by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. There's growth. There's growth in their discernment over spiritual issues, over doctrines, and of life. The author ultimately is saying to these listeners who have not come all the way to Christ, it is time to stop choking on the milk of the gospel. Today is the time to stop disregarding the truths of the gospel. 
today, if you would, but turn away from your sins and trade all that you have and all that you are for all that Christ is, you will be saved. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation, the author is saying. Third, third truth. Rejecting Christ defames the new covenant. Rejecting Christ defames the new covenant. Verses 6, or excuse me, chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, he says, He draws it back to everything that has been said before. That's what the therefore is there for. Because you are unsaved and dull of hearing, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christos, of Christ, and go on to maturity. Leave. The Greek word ephime means to forsake. Turn away from, put away, leave alone, disregard, to put off, to totally abandon and disassociate from. In my study of this word, the Bible uses this word of divorce. Where two people are no longer married. It's to put away. To get rid of. Now, this section, of course, in the whole scheme of things, cannot be speaking of a believer who just needs to grow up and mature and get onto the solid food. Well, that may be true of some of us here, probably all of us here. It's not addressed in this section. A believer is never to abandon the principles of the gospel, the basic elements of the gospel. Did not, Christ, uh, did not Paul say that he desired to know and proclaim nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified? This section must be speaking to those Jews in this church who had heard the things of God and the things of Jesus Christ and the New Testament scriptures, but were holding on still to their Judaism, still holding on to the Old Covenant. So the author is begging them, leave that behind. Do away with that. Grasp the fullness of it. Leave the shadows and grasp the substance that those shadows point to. And so the author makes six references to particulars of Judaism that were to totally be left behind. In showing these six principles of Judaism, ultimately what he's pointing at is these things will not save you anymore. Notice as we go through these six things, the, the key point, there's no mention of Jesus in any of them. Nothing of Jesus. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. Go on to maturity. Here it is. Here's the the six things. Not laying again, number one, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. All that you knew in Judaism was to repent of their sin, which is a dead work, and turn to God. They knew Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4, which says, The soul that sins shall surely die. However, while repentance is good, repentance will not save if it is alone. It will not save anyone. Now, the new covenant, and what is expounded upon here in this book is this. Repentance from your sin is not enough. And turning towards God is not enough unless you turn towards God through Jesus Christ and lay a hold of Christ. 
He's saying, you don't need reformation in your life to change and get better. You don't need reformation. You need regeneration. You don't need to turn over a new leaf. You need a new life. So, Judaism was incomplete in dealing with the sin that must be abandoned for the new covenant's complete dealing with sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. Secondly, not just a repentance from these dead works, it also says of faith towards God. And we say, that sounds good. But notice there's no mention of Christ. Believing in God is not a lot enough. Believing in God, the Father alone will not save you. Even Satan and the demons believe in God. Many people out there today say, I have faith in God, but I'm just not religious. That is the surest way to hell. Believing in God is not enough. For the Jew and the Gentile must believe in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John 14, 6. Jesus says... In God's Word, in John chapter 3, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. Faith towards God is not enough unless we grasp a hold of Christ to get to the Father. Third, he goes on and says, we need to leave behind not just this repentance of dead works and faith towards God, we need to leave behind washings or ceremonial washings. In Judaism, a household had a basin that would be used for these ceremonial washings before meals. Our minds would naturally be drawn back to Jesus who was questioned in the home of a Pharisee why his disciples didn't wash before they ate. And just as Jesus had instructed his disciples through the word of God, he is instructing his readers here through this text to leave behind the ceremony and come to Christ. It is Christ who can give the spirit that can actually wash away our sins and cleanse our souls. Leave behind which can only cleanse the outside for him who can cleanse the inside. Four, the laying on of hands. What does this mean? Now, when a person brought a sacrifice in Judaism, they were instructed, according to Leviticus chapter 1, verse 4, to do this. They would place their hands on the head of the sacrifice before the animal was slaughtered. They did this to symbolize their identification with the animal, with the sacrifice, that the animal was a substitute for them, that they deserved death, but if God would show mercy and accept the sacrifice instead, that this animal would die in their place. Here the command is to leave behind this old covenant sacrificial system, to lay a hold of Christ who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Notice the last two, five and six. Resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Again, there's no mention of Christ. The Old Testament taught a little bit about the resurrection of the dead. 
I'm going to talk a little bit about eternal judgment, about the resurrection. All it basically says is this. There is bodily life after death. Some people will be blessed. Some people will be judged. And that's about it. The New Testament expands upon that greatly. The New Covenant expands upon that greatly. We know the one who is the resurrection and the life, Jesus. And so he's saying, hey, leave behind these elementary teachings about the resurrection and come to the fuller picture here. Same thing with eternal judgment. Don't we know about judgment? Here in the Old Testament, like I said, it, it was basically all they knew One day they would stand before God and every work would be judged, and that's about it. They would get this from Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 14. Now the New Testament, the New Covenant, goes into greater detail on this subject again. Believers, our works will be judged, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. There's the judgment of the sheep and the goats, Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. There's the great white throne judgment, and that's revealed in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. And God is ultimately saying, leave behind the ABCs of eternal judgment and come to Christ so you won't be judged as an unbeliever. So you have a fuller, greater picture, and you won't go through that judgment. And he ends up saying this, and it's one of the most remarkable sections here. Remarkable passage in this whole section. Verse 3. We'll do this if God permits. We'll drop all this formalism of Judaism and empty religion now and embrace Christ if God permits. The sovereignty of God in salvation is highlighted here. God must draw the sinner out of false religion, and save them by the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That brings us to our fourth point, because I must be getting along. Rejecting Christ defies the Lord. Rejecting Christ defies the Lord. You see this in verses 4 through 6. Everything is building up towards this. Some of the Hebrews who were sitting under solid biblical teaching had many, many, many advantages. Yet these blessings, since they did not leave them to faith in Jesus, they end up, every single advantage end up being a curse to them. Instead of being a blessing, these things will end up, if they do not repent, sending them to the lowest parts of hell. These unbelievers in the church were in danger of defying God to the point where it would become impossible for them to ever be saved. I want us to look first at these advantages that they had, and I want you to examine even what's going on here at Redemption Hill. I think it's safe to say that we sit under these advantages too. It is a warning to us. It's a warning to you if you're not saved. I see five advantages here. First of all, it says that they were enlightened. That's the Greek word photizo. It means to give light by knowledge or teaching. They sat under solid biblical teaching of the Word of God for years, but really all they had was an intellectual assent to these truths. The the truths of God's Word only impacted their heads and not their hearts. And he's saying, look at this biblical knowledge, which is a good thing if it does not bring you to the truth, to faith in Christ. That blessing, that advantage will end up being a curse. You can look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20-21 through 21 to prove that point. 
this knowledge that they had of the Bible only condemned them all the more if they didn't act in faith. Secondly, it says the second advantage is they tasted the heavenly gift. What is the heavenly gift? I think it's clear. It's Jesus. He's the one who came down from heaven. And he offers the gift of salvation for sinners. Notice that they only tasted it. They only sampled it. They only tested it out. It's like... um, As I was with Aaron a couple weeks ago, we went to Costco... You have people handing out samples. Now, every time I've always been in Costco, I'll eat the samples, I'll sample it, I'll test it. I don't think I've ever really bought anything I sampled. (laughs) That's what these people did with Christ. They tested him out. said, eh, no thanks. They didn't consume him. They didn't eat and drink him. They only tested, tasted him. They saw Jesus and his work of salvation in the lives of other people in the church around them. They tasted the things of Jesus and salvation. They saw it. But they never possessed Christ. Three, it says they shared in the Holy Spirit. Now, this Greek word uh, for shared is metakosos. It is a, a term of association, not possession. Uh, it's used one time in Luke chapter 5 of speaking of uh, somebody who was in a different fishing boat. They weren't even in the same boat. They were just loosely associated. They were in boats and fishing that day. They never possessed the Spirit of God in their souls. But they were associated with the Spirit. They were around when the Spirit was around in working in the church. They saw the power of the Holy Spirit in the lives of other believers. They saw the regenerating power in others, the sanctifying others unto holiness. But that's where it ended with some of these people. They did not come all the way to Jesus Christ and possess the Spirit personally. Four, they tasted the goodness of the the Word of God. Again, the word tasted is used. They sampled, they tasted the truths of Scripture, but they didn't consume God's Word. Uh, The Greek here... The Greek term here used for word is rima. Now, that's not the usual term that we get for God's word, logos. This really, to put it simply, it emphasizes that they had sampled little sections of God's word. They spit them back out, but they were unwilling to receive the whole. Why? The main theme in Scripture is Jesus. By rejecting Jesus, they were rejecting the scriptures, no matter how much of it they sampled. Five, it says they tasted the powers of the age to come. The age of co- to come is the future kingdom of God. These people were taught by the apostles. They saw some of the miracle signs and wonders that they powerfully performed, according to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. One day, similar miracles, signs, and wonders will be reproduced in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now, I know this is somewhat different back in that time versus what we see today. But do not we see miracles, somebody going from death to life? Somebody having their lives totally changed around in a second of time? 
which would take a team of psychiatrists and psychologists and counselors a lifetime to do and would never achieve for that individual. Have we not seen greater miracles in some senses? Yet despite seeing all this evidence, they did not believe in the one whom these miracles attested to, Jesus. Now the main thrust of this section, even with these five advantages, is this. It says it is impossible. I've done the study on the Greek word. Impossible there means impossible. It's also used uh, later on in the book of Hebrews where it says, hey, it's impossible for God to lie. It means literally impossible. And so he's saying it is impossible for those who have these advantages, these five advantages, and if they turn away from Christ to ever again be brought back to the point where they can repent. It is as if the author is saying these people, these unbelieving Jews there, were in front of the narrow gate. They had a full knowledge of the gospel and who Jesus Christ is. And if they did not press through and enter through the narrowed gate of Jesus Christ, that gate would be closed off for them forever. Look, the terrible truth is this. There becomes a point where Jesus says to the sinner, enough. You want your sin? I'll let you have it. I'll never return. Where God gives the sinner over to their sin. To make a point of that, you can read Romans chapter 1, verses 24, 26, and 28. It spells it out very clearly there. What a dreadful and terrible thought, and what a difficult truth this is. They could never ever return because they had, according to this text, crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. In a sense, by their actions of unbelief, they testified that it was righteous, just, and good that Jesus was crucified, that he was a blasphemer, and he deserved death. They stand with Pontius Pilate and the Sanhedrin in their rejection of Christ. To have a full knowledge of the gospel and not to heed its command is to defy God and lose the only chance of salvation. And let me ask you now, I beg you to examine your life by the word of the Holy Lord. Does your life today, does your actions and heart show that you are dull? Does your actions and habits show that you have disregarded the gospel? Does your actions defame what is taught here in the new covenant word of God? Does your actions and heart defy the Lord? If so, I have a grave warning for you. It's no pleasure that I say this. The Word of God says it. There's a fifth point. Rejecting Christ damns the soul. Rejecting Jesus Christ will damn your soul. Verses 7 and 8. For the land that is drunk, the rain that falls upon it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is cultivated, it brings a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near being cursed. And its end is to be burned. The author here gives an illustration. Those who hear the gospel are like the earth. The rain falls, the gospel message is heard and soaks the soil. The gospel seed is planted. There is nourishment and growth. 
And yet, in this picture, there's, there's two adjoining fields. Both fields are tilled and prepared. Both fields have been watered by the rain. One field grows and gives produce, crops, production. This field is useful and is blessed by God, it says. This field is those who hear the gospel of Christ and repent of their sins that turn totally to Christ by faith. This fertile field is believers who produce fruits of righteousness. Now, to the Jewish man who heard this, this illustration would ultimately bring them back to the point of thinking of the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden, there was no sin yet. There was no curse upon the soil. There was no thorns and thistles. Mankind was in right, perfect relationship with the Lord. But there is another field. It it received the same cultivation, the same rain. They heard the same sermons. They were taught the same truth. They heard the same gospel. They sung the same songs. However, this field only produced thorns and thistles. Thorns and thistles are useless. You wouldn't go up to your kids and say, Here, kids, here's some chocolate-covered thistles. Enjoy. You wouldn't go and give to your wife a bouquet of thorns. You'd be wearing those thorns on your head before you knew it. They're useless, and guess what? This field is useless to the farmer, Jesus. To this Jew, this part of the illustration would remind them of the earth after the curse. Part of the curse would be that the earth would bear these thorns and thistles. Why? Because of Adam's sin. To the Jew, this would also remind them of some of their agricultural practices. Now, this is interesting. When a farmer would farm his field, cultivate the soil, and he saw some of his field, you know, producing the crops that he wants, but sometimes there's a section of field that just got infested with these weeds. Here's what the farmer would do. This is interesting. The farmer would verbally say a curse upon that soil. The farmer would then totally disregard and not upkeep that plot of land. He would let it go. The farmer would actually then move his fences around that plot of land, showing and putting it outside the barriers of his walls. He would avoid the shame and let everybody know, no, this land is cursed by me. I am not taking responsibility for it. I am not tending this soil. It is outside. Lastly, the farmer would take and burn that soil so the seeds of those thorns and thistles would not spread upon the good land to infect it. Unbeliever, this land is you. The fruit of your life, no matter how pleasing it is to you and others, is cursed by God and useless to Him. If you continue to reject Jesus, if you continue in your unbelief, if you continue to neglect the gospel, you will end up like this land. You will be judged by King Jesus 
you'll be cast into the burning lake of fire and brimstone. Yet, sinner, I want to point you to something in that text. It gives hope. It is worthless and near to being cursed. It's not cursed yet. Oh, sinner, you are near to the pit of hell today and God's wrath. But today is the day of mercy. Today is the day of grace. Believe in Christ today before it's too late. And this you will do if God permits. Cast yourself on Christ. He is mighty to save. He is a good master. He will save to the utmost those who come to him by faith. Let's pray. Father, I don't know um, even what to say here. Lord, be merciful. Show to us in our hearts, Lord, those rebels, those sins that would keep us from you. Let us bring them out before you, Lord, that you would take care of our sins, our rebellions, our transgressions, that we would come to you knowing you're a God that is mighty to save. Father, attend your word this morning. For your name's sake, amen.